passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. So here at Crosswinds, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And we have learned the first half of the Gospel of Mark is all about Jesus being our King, about Him being the Son of God. And in our beginning studies of this book, we've seen that has been uh, said about Jesus multiple times. For instance, John the Baptist talks about Jesus being the very Son of God, someone whose sandals he's not worthy to untie. The Heavenly Father at Christ's baptism talks about uh, Jesus being the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit affirms that visually by descending upon Jesus. You know, it's, it's nice to have a lot of good claims made about you, but the question becomes, can that person live up to those claims made about them? Last week, we began a new section in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is proving the claims made about him. We began a section that talked about Jesus actually going into the synagogue at Capernaum. And a man, uh, actually, who was demon-possessed, sort of being outed by Jesus' presence and the authority of his words as he taught. And Jesus did something that's just mind-blowing. He cast the demon out of that man with just a mere word. Be gone. Now, you and I don't have that kind of authority in our words, just merely to tell a demon to be gone and have it go. But Jesus has that kind of authority. That's why we titled the message last week, How to Make a Demon Scream. Jesus is the one who can make a demon scream. Today we pick up our study. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verse 29. You may want to turn in your Bibles when we're going to read the text there. But what takes place today that we're going to study is actually um, just a continuation of last week. Last week we saw Jesus had a very full Sabbath day. What he did is he, he taught in the synagogue, which I can tell you actually could be tiring, by the way, when you do it twice in a Sunday. And then he uh, cast the demon out. Now, what happens today is actually his lunchtime, the rest of the day, and into the evening. So we're going to see Jesus has a very full schedule, and he does this all without Red Bull and without Starbucks. So this is impressive enough just to see he can get that all in. So take out your copies of God's Word. God's Word. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 29. We're going to read to verse 39, and then please stand out of reverence for the word of God as I read these 10 verses. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was, was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, 
And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they they found him and said to him, Well, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For this is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. That ends the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. Now, last week we saw that Jesus has complete and total authority over the fallen spiritual realm with the casting out of a demon. This week we're going to see that Jesus has complete and total authority over the fallen physical realm. Because you need to understand that the way our world is is not the way God originally designed it to be. You need to understand that we were not created to die. We were created to live. Death was introduced into this world as a result of sin entering this world. Sickness and disease entered this world as a result of sin entering this world. Sickness, disease, and death is not like according to the nature channel, the way things are supposed to be. No, according to the Bible, it was never supposed to be that way. So Jesus, if he is going to be truly our king, if he is truly the son of God, he needs to not just have complete and total authority over the fallen spiritual world that we saw last week, but he needs to have complete and total authority over the fallenness in our physical world to be able to rebuke disease and sickness and death. Because ultimately, he's going to have to restore a fallen physical creation. He's ultimately going to have to raise us from the dead. So let's go ahead and and study this as we look at Jesus' authority over the physical world. Point number one, Jesus proved his authority as the Son of God by his healing power. In verse 29, it says, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, let me set the scene for you here. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, we know they are all fishermen. They're fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Last week we learned they all actually worked for the same company. They worked for the Sons of Zebedee Fishing Company. Now, we tend to think of these guys as poor men with a fishing pole, and that is actually the wrong picture of these guys. They are not poor men. These are all businessmen. We learned last week that fishing on the Sea of Galilee is a big business industry. Most people don't realize that. And the reason they've located themselves in the city of Capernaum is Capernaum has two major roads that go through it. One is known as the Via Maris, which is actually a Roman highway. So what these guys are doing is they are catching fish, they are salting fish, they are exporting fish, they are shipping them out on the major Roman highway, the Via Maris, to other parts of the world. So these guys are businessmen. They are not poor men. We continue reading, and it says this, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. In the book of Mark, it always tends to use this word immediately, is it, to keep the pace of things moving. Immediately you go from one thing to the next thing. But 
we know from archaeologists who have studied this, the word immediately here is very apropos because they have unearthed the synagogue at Capernaum. And that's not hard to find because a major one was built in the 4th century. Uh, and they have unearthed what they believe is Peter's house with really relatively great confidence. And Peter's house is literally just a stone's throw away from the synagogue. I mean, you can walk to it in one or two minutes. So it's, it, and they left the synagogue. They're immediately at Peter's house. Yep, that's exactly what happened. One or two minute walk and they are there. Now, here's some interesting information. Since archaeologists have unearthed Peter's house, what was Peter's house like, at least archaeologically? And here's where it's interesting. You need to understand Peter actually does not have a small house. He actually has a rather large house by the standards of the day. Peter's house is actually one of a, a number of houses on a complex Apparently what Peter had is he owned a piece of property that was all walled off, and on that piece of property, he had multiple small houses. Now what this meant is Peter and his wife and his children lived in one of the houses, and they would have relatives and other family members and guests stay in these other small houses with a courtyard in the center that Peter owned this entire area. So what this means is when the holidays happened and family had to get together, guess where everybody went? They went to Peter's house because he had plenty of rooms. To give you an idea of what this was like, the archaeologists tell us that there are three hearths for cooking on Peter's property. You can roughly equivalent that to three different kitchens for cooking on that property. So if you're in the fishing business and you own a property that has multiple dwellings on it and you have three kitchens, how well do you think Peter is doing? He's doing pretty well by the standards of the day. He is not a poor fisherman. Well, um, a couple other things to tell you about Peter's house. If you go to Peter's house in Capernaum, you can actually see it there today. The archaeologists have unearthed it. Uh, It'll look a little weird to you because the Catholic Church has declared Peter's house a holy site, so they've actually built a building over top of Peter's house. Now, what I'm about to say, I can't say with absolute confidence because I only have a limited amount of time to do all my research, but I can only show you what I saw in some pictures. It looks like what the Catholic Church has done with this building, this building looks sort of like a flying saucer that's on legs up in the air over top of Peter's house. Now, I didn't read this. I'm only supposing this. I thought to myself, why would you suspend the building over top of Peter's house? My guess is there's probably some glass bottoms in the building, so that way the tourists can actually look into Peter's house and not have thousands and thousands of people walk through Peter's house and then really leave a mess. Because you know what happens when like two or three people walk through our house, they leave a mess. Well, it would be a real mess in Peter's house if lots of thousands of people walked through it. So go ahead and show me that picture, by the way. That's a little section of Peter's house. And that black section above that is the suspension on the building that is above Peter's house. So you could look down, I believe, and see inside Peter's house. Another quick question. How... Can we know they've actually identified Peter's house? Because if you've been in the Holy Land, which I haven't, but I've been told this, 
there's all kinds of holy sites that are actually tourist traps. You know, pay money to go see this and pay money to go see that. And you're really not too certain that that's actually what you're seeing. Well, they believe this with relatively high confidence that this is Peter's house. One of the reasons they say this is because the archaeological data goes all the way back into the first century that this is the location of Peter's house. In addition, there is what they call a devotional graffiti written on the walls of Peter's house showing that this place was actually used as a place of worship and possibly as a church even all the way back into the very first century. So this is highly likely. <coughs> now we continue. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told her about, they told him about her. Take a drink, guys, hold on. Couple of things to note here. It talks about uh, Simon, which is Simon Peter's mother-in-law. You may not realize this, but Peter was not a single man. Peter here is identified as a married man. And incidentally, the other apostles are also not bachelors. They are married guys, not single guys. And oftentimes when we read our Bible, we tend to think of them as perpetual bachelors. And that's just not the biblical picture. For instance, Paul talks about this. Look at the implications of this verse. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, Paul says, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Cephas, by the way, is another name for Peter. So here we find he's a married guy. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean that a married state is better than a single state, but I just want you that you can relate to these guys because they understand what it means to be married. Peter's wife, by the way, um, would have most likely not traveled with him in the beginning of the gospel accounts with Jesus. Um, the Bible does not tell us that Peter and his wife had children. Tradition does mention that Peter and his wife had children, though uh, separate the difference between tradition and biblical truth. You know, one has a much greater degree of confidence, obviously. We trust the Bible. We're not always trusting tradition. But we know that later on in, in Peter's life, apparently his wife traveled with him on some of their mission trips. Now, the other thing we learn as we look at this text is maybe there's an ulterior motive that Peter has for inviting Jesus to lunch because Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Maybe the reason that Peter had Jesus come to lunch is to see if he can actually come and help her. The text in Mark says that Peter's mother-in-law had a fever, but there's a parallel account to this. Actually, there's two parallel accounts to this, but let me just look at the one in the Gospel of Luke. It's in Luke chapter 4. Luke adds a little bit more details on this, and in Luke chapter 4, verse 38, he says that she has a high fever, or in the Greek, it's literally a mega fever. Uh, you know, Luke being the doctor, he adds some more of these doctoral details that maybe people like Mark would not notice or take, take note of. And when you say a mega fever, this does not mean that she has the flu. Uh, this is not that kind of a fever. Uh, they say, as I read some, read some commentators on this, this is the kind of a fever that accompanies a body that is fighting life-threatening infection. 
we are not accustomed to seeing this because we have antibiotics. We have penicillin. If somebody gets an infection, we you know, dope them up with those things and we get rid of the infection. But in the ancient world, you need to realize they don't have antibiotics. When there's an infection in the body, people languished. People suffered in agony. How many has ever had like an infection under their fingernail? Anybody experienced an infection in a cut? Is it painful? Oh yeah, it's painful. Now imagine a lady who has an infection in her body that her, has a raging fever because she is so filled with infection. The reality is that many times in the ancient world, people fighting this kind of body-wide infection, they just didn't make it. And you just have a sense of desperation in here. Now, when you go to Luke chapter 4, where Luke gives a slightly different color to things, though it's the same, same account, he's just adding a little different perspective, what you find is Peter and his wife say this, can you help her? You can see the sort of the desperation on Peter's face. The desperation on his wife's face is his wife is watching her mother go through agony and suffering. Can you help her? Is there anything you can do? And the text continues. And he came and he just took her by the hand. And he lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. She's laying down. She's so feverish and so weak, she can't get out of bed to greet Jesus, the, the great rabbi. And I love the compassion, so much compassion. Jesus extends his hand to her. He grabs her hand, and then he lifts her out of bed. And as he lifts her up, he lifts the fever and the infection she is fighting straight out in an instant. Once again, Luke, which is a parallel account to this, uh, gives us a slightly different, though similar, angle on things. Uh, Mark focuses on the fact that Jesus took her by the hand and lifted her. But Luke focuses on the fact, it says that Jesus rebuked the fever. Last week, we saw the authority of Jesus' words. that He rebuked the demon and sent him out. Here we see the authority of Jesus' words over disease. He says the word, and disease, infection, and sickness is gone in an instant. There it is, Luke 4.39 in your text, in your notes rather. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. So she is healed instantly, completely. The disease is gone. She is completely restored to health. And then there's this very interesting little line. She began to serve them. What happens is grandma kicks into grandma mode. You know, grandma, she has the favorite family recipes, and you're going to have the guest over. She's going to make what she is famous for. That's exactly what she does. She gets in the kitchen, and she starts whipping up all this food. I'm going to feed them. That's the way I love them. And, you know, the neat part is, think about this. She's making quite a feast, 
And she's getting a real late start on it, isn't she? She has four hungry fishermen. She has possibly their families, at least maybe portions of their families. She has Jesus. She has Peter's family there. She's going to make a lot of food. And putting that all together for grandma is a minor miracle when she's healthy. And she doesn't have a freezer. She doesn't have a microwave. She doesn't have frozen pizza available to her. She's doing this all from scratch. Now remember, minutes before, she was dangling between life and death. I don't know about you, and I have a fever, and you know, the fever finally breaks after having the flu. I need some recovery time. I need chicken soup, maybe some toast. Let's take it easy. You know, I'm not up to full strength for quite some time. But she is restored so completely when she's healed, so completely that she can make a feast for the entire family and guests. That is the kind of completeness with, with Jesus. When he heals someone, it takes place. And we continue, it says this, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. It doesn't take a long time for the news to travel. Jesus, that, that, that rabbi... He cast out a demon with just a word. Did anybody hear about Peter's mother-in-law? You know, the one that we are praying on the prayer chain for, that we didn't know if she was going to make it or she was going to live and die. He just picked her up and said the word, and she was healed. Now, remember, this is pre-Snapchat. This is pre-Facebook. This is the original social media. You know, word of mouth. But people, for instance, they don't come out uh, instantaneously. What we find is they come out, it says, in the evening. Now, that is because it is the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, you're only allowed to travel a very short distance. And they cannot travel all the way to Peter's house. Which, by the way, we're about ready to find out. It's a good thing Peter has a big house right now. Because he's going to have a lot of guests this day. But according to um, the way the Sabbath rules went, 6 p.m. in the evening, the day was over. Or if three stars appeared in the sky, that meant the day was over and it was free to travel. And I picture what happens is like all of the people with all of their sick are coming out of their houses. It looks like ants, you know, all at once. Everybody is coming to Peter's house. And they're all going to be in Peter's courtyard. And it says, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out the demons. Now, by the way, when it says that, it is not meant to imply when it says he healed many that he left some unhealed. That's not the point. Saying he healed many was there's a lot of people that came to be healed. And he healed all of them with just a word of rebuke or just the touch of a hand. Late into the night, they kept coming, and they kept coming, 
And they kept coming. And I picture Peter looking out the window of his compound, you know. It's like, still can't see the end of the line, Jesus. They're still coming. 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. Jesus is still healing again and again and again. By the way, these are all legitimate diseases (coughs) that he is healing. He's healing people who were lame from birth. And all of a sudden, they have, their feet are enabled to walk. People who are missing hands or even body parts are having them regrow instantly at Jesus' word. People who have had gouged out eyes from work accidents have those eyes regrow and fully restored without the need of a pair of glasses. And you say, well, really, are you sure that he actually did those kind of miracles where body parts regrew? And I say that because many of us have forgotten about leprosy. We've read about leprosy. We don't understand leprosy. You know, we had a little song that we'd sing when I was a teenager. Leprosy, all our body parts are falling off, can't you see? And we went on from there. But the point is that leprosy rots the flesh. And lepers would literally have their nose or body parts or fingers fall off. When Jesus healed a leper, a body part literally regrew. This is amazing. Now, it says that when he cast out demons, though, one of the things he did is he commanded them to be silent. You may wonder, why did he want the demons to be silent? Simple answer, I think, Ab. This is my answer for you. I don't think he wanted Satan in charge of his PR campaign. Like, just bad name association. All the demons are telling everybody he's God. And no, that's not the guy I want telling everybody my true identity. I'll take care of my own personal PR campaign myself. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to pause at this point. I'd like to give uh, some application. This application, I'd like to talk about healing. Healing in the Bible, Jesus' healing, and God's healing in our lives today. So let me just talk about this. What does the Bible teach about healing? The honest truth is there are many fake healers out there today. You know, there's the Benny Hens, there's the Peter Popovs out there, and I struggle with a lot of them because to me, they seem to be some of the most evil and lecherous people out there because what they do is they they get on television and they say send me your money when I open the envelope and I see your money I'll take your money and I'll pray over your envelope and you'll be healed or I'll send you a little prayer cloth and you can cover that part of your body that is sick or filled with cancer with a prayer cloth and it'll all be healed and, and and go away and To me, I struggle with a lot of this because what they're doing is they're taking people, advantage of people who are desperate, people who are looking for hope, people who are desperate for life, and they're just bilking them of their their money, and nothing is ever happening. Now, many of us as Americans, we don't fall to these kind of... um, charlatan faith healers because we know enough about medicine and we have a good enough medical community in America that we uh, are not as tricked by this kind of stuff. But when you go to places around the world, uh, like India, Africa, maybe even the Philippines, I don't know, Arliss, 
but you find a lot of people who can get sucked up into this stuff because they are desperate for hope, desperate for healing. Now, what I want to point out to you is Jesus' healing is different than the kind of healing you see in these faith healers. The Bible does talk about there being the gifts of healing, and we're going to look at that in a few minutes, but Jesus' healing is completely different than this stuff. If Benny Hinn's healing was like Jesus' healing, Benny Hinn would be going to the hospital, and every single room in the hospital would be empty by the time he left. If Benny Hinn's healing was like Jesus' healing, he'd go to all the cancer wards, and every person in the cancer ward would be healed. Every person in the AIDS ward would be healed because that is exactly what Jesus did. Every single person with just a touch or a word was healed no matter what it was. Completely, totally restored to full vitality, full health in an instant. Just like Peter's mother-in-law able to cook a massive meal. See, Jesus' healings were unique. Let me just give you seven ways, and I'll move through these rather quickly. How were they unique? Number one, he healed with a word or just a touch. Number two, he healed instantly. We're going to see in Mark chapter 5, the woman with bleeding in her body. Instantly, she was healed. Mark chapter 17, someone with, men with leprosy. Instantly, they were healed. Number three, Jesus healed totally. Everyone had complete full strength and vitality instantly. Jesus healed everybody is number four. There was not a single disease that was uncurable by Jesus. Number five, Jesus healed real diseases. Not migraines, lower back pain. You know, he healed real diseases. Number six, Jesus raised dead people. We're going to see about the widow of Nain. There's the casket going by, and Jesus puts his hand in the casket. Young man, arise. He's up. Whoa, what was that? You, know, you don't see Benny Hinn going to like a graveyard, do you? Does Benny Hinn go to the mortuary? Jesus, that's no problem. I can take care of dead people. Rise, and out they come. Number seven, and this one is interesting. You realize that Jesus' healings did not necessarily require faith. You often hear these faith healers, all oh, the reason you're not healed is you just don't have enough faith. Now, sometimes in the Bible you see that Jesus heals and he says, or he does things, he says he didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Sometimes you do see that, but you don't see that all the time. Like when he raised dead people up. How much faith did the dead people have? Not much. How about this particular time in Capernaum? How many people had faith in Jesus Christ at this point? Beginning of his ministry. I don't think they had much at all. Yet he healed them all. So the idea that God will only heal you, the only chance is if you have enough faith, that's not necessarily true couple other things to tell you. In the latter part of the New Testament, we don't necessarily see everyone miraculously healed. <clears throat> I didn't have a chance to do this research myself, so I'm pulling this little part out of a book, uh, but I, so I can't verify it. I didn't have a chance to, at least, but I think it's interesting. 
One writer I was looking at said, you know, the first miracle you find in the Bible takes place in Genesis chapter 20, uh, roughly around 2200 B.C. From that point to 750 B.C., you have approximately 20 miraculous healing kind of interventions. From 750 B.C. to zero, you have zero recorded miraculous healing interventions. Jesus comes along, and guess what happens? Every day, nonstop, he's healing people, like hundreds of people at a shot. Full day's work, every single disease, instantly, completely, totally, fully healed by the touch or the word of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is even getting arrested. Remember the high priest's servant's ear? Gets whacked off. Jesus picks it up. Oh, I'm sorry. There you go. You're healed. You know, it's like it's going all over, all over the time, every single place. And then we know that it seems like Jesus delegated this authority to the 70 to heal, delegated this authority to the 12 to heal, and to, to Paul. But here is what is interesting. It seems like as you get to the latter part of the New Testament, as the canon is sort of beginning to close, that authority to heal, like Jesus, begins to recede. Look what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. 2 Timothy, one of the last New Testament letters written, at the end here of the canon. He says, Erastus remained at Corinth. Paul says, I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Well, Paul, why didn't you just heal him? Like Jesus. He didn't. Or 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul, why didn't you just say, you're healed? Why do you say at this point, take some medicine? Or if you get to a Philippians, he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and the minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard that you, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Why did Paul turn to the mercies of God and not just heal Epaphras with a simple word? It's not the same thing. Healing like Jesus was sort of limited to Jesus and to the apostles, and when he wanted it to be like that, it seems to be receding like that. Or in 2 Corinthians, Paul himself. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God chose not to heal Paul or whatever this thorn in the flesh was. 
So the Jesus style, instant, total, complete, all over the place healing seems to have receded at the tail end of the New Testament. Now, that's not to say there's no such thing as a gift or gifts of healing today. And the scriptures talk about that. What does the Bible mean when it talks about gifts of healing? 1 Corinthians 12, 28. It says, and God is appointed, and it gives a list of things, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. What is he talking about here? This is the best way I can summarize it. It's not talking about healing like Jesus. It's the, it's the gift that those who pray for someone's healing find their prayers answered more frequently than other people. Does God still heal in response to our prayers? Yes. But is he healing like Jesus all the time, everyone, by just a touch and a word as somebody walks through a crowd? No, not necessarily anymore. I put down four different ways that God does healing today. Number one, sometimes God brings about healing through doctors in response to our prayers. Naturally, he, does, he uses doctors. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor. I, I sat with him at a conference, and he was coughing the whole time at the conference. And it's sort of weird to have a guy coughing next to you. It turns out that he had cancer, and it's a very aggressive cancer. And I've been following his caring bridge. And the prayer request was, at first, was to please get the um, insurance to approve the treatment for chemo, because the insurance wouldn't approve the treatment for chemo. And it was just a big paperwork nightmare. And we're all angry at insurance. But then it turns out, because the insurance didn't approve his treatment, he was available to be uh, then on a special trial run of a new drug. There happened to be one seat open on it, and the first trial run of the drug is extremely successful against his particular kinds of cancer. And last night on his caring bridge, he says, you know, this is God's providence. Actually, he was answering our prayers. This is much better than chemo, and it's a very high probability I will survive. God was answering prayers. Not the way we expected, but he was answering them. Number two, number two, sometimes God brings about healing supernaturally in response to our prayers. I've met those people. I have people in my family that weren't supposed to recover, and yet God, for unexplained reasons, has healed them. Number three, God sometimes chooses not to heal in response to our prayers, but uses suffering as a platform for his glory. That is an acceptable response by God. It may not be the response we want, but that was the response that Job had. Suffering was the platform from God's glory. That was the response that Paul had. Your suffering, your thorn in the flesh, will be a place where your grace will be sufficient. And number four, sometimes God uses our suffering as a platform for our glory in death to bring us home to Jesus. Remember, Death may be our enemy, but the scriptures say this, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is better by far. That for us as Christians, death is not the worst moment of our life. It is actually the best moment of our life. The moment when we see Jesus face to face and nothing, my friends, could be better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we have studied in your word. We thank you for how Jesus' healings 
were incredibly powerful and true and real and different. They were complete. Nothing could stand against um, the authority of Jesus' word to heal. Father, I thank you that healing still does take place today. <clears throat> Though not necessarily like Jesus, you still oftentimes graciously heal um, through doctors and through providence. Sometimes you heal miraculously. And Lord, sometimes we know that you choose not to heal. And we want to accept that and use that as a platform to bring glory to your name, whether it's our suffering and our death. We still can trust our great and glorious God who will bring us home to see him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.